Welcome to I Thought I'd Be Rich By Now, the podcast for millennial women to obsess. I'm your host, Deborah. If you're enjoying this little podcast, please rate and review. This helps me out so much and helps others to find us. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at I Thought I'd Be Rich By Now. So, are you going to survive the vibe shift? If you actually know what I'm talking about, you're too online. But it also means you read the article that everyone on Writer Twitter was reading a couple of weeks ago. That is the cut article by Alison P. Davis titled, A Vibe Shift is Coming, Will Any of Us Survive? In the article, the author describes the theory of a vibe shift. The theory was first discussed on the substack 8-Ball by Sean Monahan. A vibe shift is basically when the culture makes a definitive change or hard turn. The most recent vibe shifts were the indie hipster revolution when we all started drinking out of mason jars and band members started wearing suspenders. After that, Monaghan says, was the norm core era post-2010 and most recently we are now in the hype beast woke era. Honestly, I didn't know what hype beast meant, so if you're old like me, Urban Dictionary defines hype beast as someone who loves trends, especially the ones on shoes and clothing. You can spot hype beasts wearing Supreme or Thrasher shirts, Yeezys, etc. Sean Monaghan's prediction is that we are on the cusp of a vibe shift. So Alison P. Davis interviewed Sean Monaghan for this article. Sean is 35, which is my age. And this line from the article knocked me back. Like me, Monaghan is a geriatric millennial, but while it remains to be seen if I will shift, he has already moved forward. Okay, what the hell is a geriatric millennial? That's me, apparently. If you're 35 or older, we're geriatrics. If you haven't had an anxiety spiral as of yet, here's your cue. You're a geriatric millennial. You're entitled now to your senior's discount at the movies and your discount at the pharmacy. Another tidbit from this article. Monaghan does have some theories though. I feel like the trajectory of the 2010s has been exhausted in a lot of ways. The culture war topic no longer seems quite as interesting to people. Social media isn't a place where you can be as creative anymore. All the angles are figured out. That part rang very true to me in terms of social media not being a place to be as creative anymore. I remember Instagram before everyone had it. I know I'm so hipster, but at the beginning... I actually didn't follow anyone on Instagram that I knew in real life and I had no desire to. I only followed photographers and celebrities and some random accounts. This was around the time when Facebook began to become a place less about people and more about responding to news articles and arguing online. I love babies and I love your pictures of your babies, but Instagram was a place to get away from that. It was more about aesthetics and beautiful and appealing photos, whereas Facebook was for family photos. I was a person who posted tons of those types of photos to Facebook. But Instagram was a place where I didn't do that and no one did it at that time. Now, obviously, there are tons of people still being creative and doing amazing things online and especially in the micro sense. But I just mean in the macro sense, it doesn't seem like anything's new anymore and everything's kind of being figured out and anything you want to look up like has been done a million times. Yes, including podcasting. Shut up. The article goes on. 
He thinks the new vibe shift could be the return of the early aughts, indie sleaze, American apparel, flash photography at parties, and messy hair and messy makeup. He riffs, plus a return to a more fragmented culture, people going off in a lot of different directions because it doesn't feel like there's a coherent singular vision for music or fashion. He sees substacks and podcasts as the new blogs and a move away from Silicon Valley's interest in optimizing workflow, which is just so anti-decadence. Most promisingly, he predicts a return of irony. Okay, so what's funny in this article is that it's very on point and it could be in my head, but I feel like this vibe shift theory is true. It's that with all the change in every aspect of our life because of the pandemic and just how long it's been since most people have felt normal or that life was normal, the vibe shift or cultural change or whatever you want to call it is going to be dramatic. For a long time, writers and thinkers have described an era of just absolute partying and roaring 20s type feel post-pandemic. We are, of course, in a very, very different time. I personally just love getting wrapped up thinking about the potential change and worrying about it if I'm going to get left behind and be one of those people who doesn't follow the culture forward. But if I'm being honest, I've probably been left behind by two or three vibe shifts already. As one Twitter user posted, getting left behind is literally growing up. You're not always going to be on the cutting edge. What's so funny and makes me feel so old is that I never understood adults that just wanted to listen to like the 70s or 80s or any kind of oldies radio station channel. I was like, why don't you want to listen to new music? And now I'm the adult who loves turning on the 90s and 2010s and like 2000s channels on satellite radio. I am that person now. I mean, if Gen Z's are leading the vibe shift, maybe it's just not for me. In the article, they describe Gen Z's who wear trucker hats and look like they just stepped out of 2008. Remember in the 90s when everything was like 1960s inspired and all of our parents never let us forget that they wore it first? That's us now. I don't know if I'm going to survive the vibe shift, but good luck to us all. In these horrible and terrible times, it's just a little fun thing to think about. The Trouble with Hating You is a romantic comedy novel written by Sajni Patel. It's a hate you to love you, enemies to lovers book, and it was exactly what I needed at the time. I found myself excited to open it up and read it, finally, because the historical fiction novel that I had read right before this one was not very entertaining. It was interesting. It taught me about some world history that I was not familiar with, but I wasn't excited while reading it. The Trouble with Hating You, on the other hand, was like a breath of fresh air. It's hard to describe this book as a light breezy read only because they do have an ongoing storyline that has a really heavy element to it, but the main part of the book that you're super invested in are the two main characters falling for each other. So that part of the book was overall, you know, like fun and easy to read and to get through. The book follows Leah Thakkar, who's a young, independent, strong woman, but who still falls victim to meddling parents that want to see her married off. On a visit to her parents' home for dinner, Leah realizes that mom and dad are trying to set her up. Her parents are quite concerned that their daughter is getting too old for eligible bachelors to want her. 
Also, they have to contend with the fact that Leah doesn't have the best reputation at the temple where a woman's worth is measured by how virtuous she is perceived to be. A woman that likes to go out with different men and chooses to live on her own unmarried instead of under the watchful eye of her parents at home may be too dangerous for marriage. When Leah realizes that a man and his mother are coming over for dinner, she makes her great escape from the home, humiliating her parents and causing great offense to the bachelor, Jay Shaw, who can't believe Leah could treat her parents and his mother so poorly. After the disastrous dinner that didn't happen, Leah can breathe easy knowing that she won't see Jay unless she's on a rare visit to the temple. Wrong. Leah is a biochemical engineer at a company that is on the brink of collapse and a law firm has been brought in to try and help salvage the company. Guess who is the new young attorney tasked with turning the ship around? None other than Jay Shaw. Great setup. And so it goes that we as the audience get to watch Leah and Jay argue and fight while having to spend more and more time together. Both Leah and Jay have gone through some traumatic events as younger people, but have dealt with these experiences in very different ways. Jay feels like he doesn't deserve happiness, while Leah assumes no one will ever accept her fully, so she always has her guard up. I don't think I've had this much fun reading a book since I read Beach Read. And when I say fun, I really enjoy like all my murder crime thrillers, but this was just like fun without having that darkness of death in the background and I loved Beach Read which was a very similar premise in terms of like an enemies to lover type book. Of course it's not perfect and very few books are. I don't need it to be perfect but one of the issues for me with this book, The Trouble with Hating You, was some of the dramatic like over-the-top descriptions. So for example, this is a small spoiler, so skip ahead like a minute and a half or two minutes. They really emphasize that Leah has slept with a lot of men and is more sexually open than her friends that grew up in the same way as her in a more religiously conservative family. Leah leans into this reputation and it is mentioned many times how sexually active she is. So you would assume that she's probably sleeping with a new person maybe every, like at least every couple of months or so. It eventually comes out that she has slept with a total of six people. No, not six people this year, but six people, six men in total. I can totally see how all of the older people, including her parents, would be very upset by this number because they expect their children to only have slept with their spouses. But it's written in a way that assumes the audience, like us, would read that and be like, yep, that girl has had a lot of sex partners. I can safely say the way her sex life is hyped up in this book, you would think that she's had like 20 plus partners. We discussed this book at my book club because I read this book for book club and like most of us were laughing about this fact. Like when it was revealed it was only six, we were all like, huh, what? That far less, that was far less dramatic than we were expecting, but okay. But overall, 
I really enjoyed reading The Trouble with Hating You by Sajani Patel. It was something fun and light overall. And between watching Dexter, the serial killer of serial killers, and listening to true crime about unsolved murders and listening to whodunit audiobooks, thank you Sajani Patel for bringing some sunshine to my life of darkness. I started listening to a new podcast not surprisingly, it's a true crime podcast and it has been out for a few years. It's called The Teacher's Pet. You've probably heard of it. It's a huge podcast and is on every list if you're searching on, you know, what's a really good true crime podcast to listen to at the moment. This is an odd case because it seems that it was very solvable at the beginning. So, in 1982, Lynette Dawson a nurse and mother of two little girls went missing in Australia and has not been seen or heard of since. She was married to a former rugby league star, Chris Dawson, who was at one point considered a very talented athlete. As married adults, Chris Dawson was a school teacher at a high school. He began to get one of his young pupils, Joanne Curtis, to babysit his children. One day, Chris Dawson told his wife, Lynette, that he was bringing Joanne to their house to live since she was having trouble with her parents. Of course, this did not sit right with Lynette, but she allowed the young girl in. When one of her daughters caught Chris and Joanne in a compromising position, Lynette demanded that the girl leave. About a month later, Lynette disappeared and Chris moved in his teenage student into his home and bedroom full time. Chris Dawson has always maintained that his wife left him since they were having marriage problems. She called him a few times in the early days when she left in 1982 to say that she was okay. She may have even run off with a religious cult, but after those first few phone calls in 1982 to her husband, she has literally dropped off the face of the earth. No calls to her parents, and her heartbroken mother has since died. No phone calls to her daughters, who everyone who knew her seemingly says her children were her whole world and they cannot fathom that she would never contact the girls again. She apparently did not take any of her clothes with her or any of her personal belongings when she supposedly left her family. There are no bank accounts that have been opened in her name and no record of anyone using her ID after 1982. That makes you think of someone who has maybe joined some sort of cult that restricts any and all access, someone who has been kidnapped and held for 40 years, someone who is a super spy and is talented at disappearing, or someone who is dead. The Teacher's Pet is a podcast by The Australian and was a smash hit in Australia and other parts of the world. Headley Thomas is the host of Teacher's Pet and interviewed so many people on this podcast, including friends and family of Joanne and Chris. I believe that he actually attended a school that Chris Dawson taught at, but it was either right before or right after Chris had left, so they didn't actually cross paths. Besides the glaring spotlight this podcast put on Chris's relationship with his wife, it also highlights the very disturbing actions that seem to show him and other teachers grooming and abusing children at the schools that they taught. That is one of the biggest revelations in this podcast, just how prevalent teachers abusing their authority and preying on young boys and girls was discovered at one school in particular that Chris taught. 
it was devastating hearing how some of those same students seemed to have been so traumatized by what their teachers had done to them that they turned to substance abuse in some cases and just seemed to have had really sad lives while paying the price for the actions of adults that were put in places of power over their young lives. Besides Lynette disappearing without a trace, another bizarre thread of this case is the lack of action of so many people in her life. Her mother really loved Chris Dawson as a son-in-law and wanted to believe that Chris was telling her the truth. Her friends who suspected her husband had something to do with her disappearance and didn't speak up have said things like, we assumed her family were speaking with police or we were just work friends, I didn't feel it was my place. I know a lot of people will listen to this podcast and judge her friends and family harshly because Lynette did deserve better, but human beings, we are prone to being passive and are open to manipulation and denial. And I think a lot of people can relate with like the whole idea, oh, that was my work friend. This was just a neighbor I saw. Why would I get involved? She has people or that person has people in their life that are much closer that are of course dealing with this issue. I don't blame her mother for wanting to hold on to all hope that her daughter was still alive and will just somehow reappear one day versus facing the truth that she'll likely never see her child again and that her son-in-law, who she loved and trusted, the father of her grandchildren, could potentially be involved in a big cover-up. But the sad truth is that more should have been done. A bigger alarm should have been rang by everyone around Lynette when she first disappeared. Thankfully, she had a friend who followed up with the police over the years multiple times to help keep Lynette's missing person case from going permanently cold. There have been major, major updates to this case in the last couple of years. So if you want to listen to it fresh without any big spoilers, don't search this case. Turning Red is a new animated movie by Pixar and Disney and is available on Disney+. This movie is directed by Domi Shi and was written by her and Julia Cho. Domi is a Chinese-Canadian animator, director, writer extraordinaire who's in her mid-30s and has already won an Academy Award, which she received a few years ago for her short film Bao. Domi is the first woman to direct her own feature film at Pixar. So as a Canadian woman, I am so proud of her accomplishment, like she's my friend or something. This is so annoying to even have to talk about, but there was a really ridiculous controversy around this movie when it first came out. And unfortunately, it was big enough that you can't really talk about this movie without referencing this controversy. It started with a reviewer from Cinema Blend who said that the movie wouldn't be able to appeal to a wider audience. He kind of said, um, like, Domi, she, the story feels like she wrote this um, story for the community she grew up with, like downtown Toronto. And so the review kind of blew up online. People are allowed to have bad takes. This reviewer just got it really wrong, in my opinion, and in a lot of other people's opinion. I also thought his comment about Domi writing this for her community, I just thought it was such a ridiculous comment because there are so many big actors and directors who just feel like they write for their niche audience in reference to the way they grew up or what humor they enjoy, and they write it for a specific audience, and then millions of people 
go out to see those movies. I'm just thinking of Adam Sandler. He's a super successful guy. You know, people might criticize him and say he kind of makes the same type of movie now, but like millions of people still love that and still watch his movies. And a lot of people can't relate to those. They might not know people like that or guys that love that humor, but it doesn't have to be written for everyone to appeal to a wider audience. This was uh, just a classic coming-of-age film in many ways. We've seen coming-of-age films with so many types of characters, including cars, monsters, talking dogs. So I'm quite sure that having the main star be a Chinese-Canadian girl is not so crazy and out there that no one outside of that group could relate to. I have to mention that the reviewer did put out an apology and Cinema Blend pulled the review. But once the review was posted everywhere, of course it's the internet, so it's there forever, and it kind of opened up the floodgates for other complaints about the movies, mainly from parents who were upset that the movie encourages kids to disobey their parents. Even if you think that the movie does after watching it, is that something new? No, of course it isn't. I immediately thought of the movie A Goofy Movie, which I just recently watched again because it is one of the all-time great animated films and has literally like one of the top three best original songs of any movie ever. But in that movie, Goofy's son actually lies to his dad and misdirects the road trip so his dad doesn't realize he's sending him in the wrong direction so that his dad can end up taking him to a concert to impress a girl. His dad finds out that his son has lied to him and he still does everything he can to get his son to the concert. So disobeying your parents and winning in the end is certainly not a new concept for kids shows or movies at all. After all that controversy, you may be disappointed when you watch the movie and find out that it's just a really nice family movie that everyone can enjoy. Turning Red does a good job of illuminating the complexities of parents and all that they give up and sacrifice for their own children and family and also how hurtful it can be to them when their children defy them or disobey them. It also shows how unrealistic some parents can be when they put these huge responsibilities on their little kids and expect them to never grow up and change and have interests or views of their own. First of all, it was so fun watching an animated movie that is based in Canada because as a Canadian kid, like you would never see that unless the show was actually made in Canada. Like you would never see a show that is made by a US production company that's based here. So that was just fun to see. The movie takes place in downtown Toronto and is set in 2002. I've said this already too many times on this podcast, but I live for nostalgia of when I was growing up. And so I just loved that it was based during those years. The kids have Tamagotchis, which made me want to go on eBay to see if I could buy one at a reasonable price. I remember getting one and being so happy. And then I have a last memory of seeing my little Tama baby, my Tamagotchi baby with a bunch of smelly poops around it and I guess I was just okay with it dying. I was a very bad 14-year-old teen mom. 
Turning Red follows Meilin Lee, aka May, who is voiced by Rosalie Chang. May is a super cute, outgoing, and unashamedly nerdy mama's girl. As a 13-year-old, May and her friends totally obsess over a boy band called Four Town, but May's mom can't know about her obsession. She is very close with her mother and helps her every day at their temple, which they are caretakers for. Their temple honors and is dedicated to their ancient ancestor, Sun Yi. As far as May's mother is concerned, her little girl is an overachiever and is on the path that was set out for her and will not deviate. Her mom loves her but does not even suspect that her daughter could want something more than school achievements such as boys. Well, her mother Ming, who is voiced by the great Sandra Oh, finds out that May has a crush on a real-life boy person, the horror. She embarrasses her daughter in public when she confronts the awful, despicable boy who literally has no idea May has a crush on him and warns him to stay away from her precious little girl. That night, after her total humiliation, May essentially has terrible anxiety nightmares, which I can totally relate to. But when she wakes up, something odd has happened. She has turned into a giant red panda. Basically, she finds out that she has something that is like a gene passed down to the woman in her family, which started with their ancestor, Sun Yi. The red panda usually appears when the women are of age and when they are experiencing high emotions, but there is a fix. Her family will hold a ceremony, as per tradition, to permanently get rid of the panda from popping out unexpectedly. In the meantime, May is having fun with unauthorized use of her giant panda alter ego at school and around friends. May and her BFFs, Miriam, Priya, and Abby, are still obsessed with Four Town and find out that the boy band are coming to the Sky Dome in a few short weeks, so they have to devise a plan of how to use May's panda as a way to facilitate her secret attendance to the concert. Lots of family and friend drama ensues as May fights to find her own voice and make her own choices versus the loving but at times misguided intentions of her family. This movie was so sweet and so fun in many ways, and it was really relatable. I loved her and her friends being boy-obsessed. That was totally me at their age. One of my best friends in middle school, so we were right around May's age, was so in love with NSYNC that she had her whole room, I think every single wall plastered from the wall to the like bottom of the wall to the ceiling in NSYNC photos. It was truly an obsession. I remember asking her one day if all members of NSYNC were in a burning house and you could only save one, who would you choose? And she just started screaming at me like, how could you ask me that? There was even more controversy with this movie. It was over periods. Oh my gosh, menstruation. They mentioned periods in a movie about 13-year-olds, and some people lost their minds. Like, how old do you think girls are when they get their periods for the first time? Most of them are not 22 years old. They're kids when they get it. The period controversy really bothered me because when you watch the movie, it is so tame. And of course, you want to make a movie that's for kids age-appropriate. But what is not age-appropriate about making a quick reference to periods? 
She is literally the age that most girls get their periods. It's like a blink and you'll miss it reference, and I thought it was really funny. As a woman who was once a 13-year-old, I thought the writers did such a good job with crafting a story that is relatable to what early teen girls are really like. I really enjoyed turning red, and I'm sure you and your family will too. Spring is in the air. The last little bit of snow just melted from my backyard. This has actually already happened, and then it snowed several times after, which was so depressing I can't even explain. But spring is finally here. I believe it. I'm speaking it into existence that the warm weather is here to stay and no more snow. Thank you so much for listening today. Please connect with me on social media, uh, on Instagram at I thought I'd be rich by now. And you can email me at I thought I'd be rich by now at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this little podcast, please rate and review. Goodbye.